Welcome to episode 56 of The People on Kei Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. Our guests on this episode are Joel Kayak and Lisa Ann Auerbach. Joel Kayak is an interdisciplinary artist and art educator who lives and works in Los Angeles. I enjoy the pleasure of the body, that ability to, to sort of at least temporarily change your perception of your body and the way it behaves and the way your mind works um, is, is something that also we all, no matter what culture we're from, you know, we're, we're seeking that. Lisa Ann Auerbach is also an LA-based interdisciplinary artist and educator. She founded the Meow, an art space in the Mount Washington neighborhood of Los Angeles. Yeah, I feel for me, humor is like the sugar that makes the medicine go down. That it's a way to invite people to engage with topics that otherwise they wouldn't be interested in thinking about because it brings a softness and a humanity to even difficult topics. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond. It's like a broken record, magically repaired. You can listen to The People every third Sunday at 3 p.m. on Keichung, 1630 AM. Or you can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. You can find us on SoundCloud. Or Stitcher. You can find us on Overcast. Or anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also find us at insertblancpress.net. Just click on the people at the top of the page. Joel Kayak and Lisa Ann Auerbach, welcome to the people. Yeah, welcome, guys. Thank Thanks you. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having us. Um, my dad was always a really funny guy when I was growing up. Um, he was like sort of a slapstick kind of guy. He was really a, an athlete, really had a, he was a real healthy guy. So he was really physical with me and always joking. And he was also really just a, a real joker with all my friends. And he was really good at like making the, the more awkward of my friends feel really relaxed with his humor. And I always thought that, like, of course, we don't know what the first joke was that was ever made by humans but I've always thought that it was probably a joke to make someone feel better about something really terrible and I think that that's like this that humor is like the thing that really connects humans and and humor around awful things even more so because you know we don't really have any guarantees in our lives that we're going to ever be happy but we're sure as shit going to be sad sometimes and really fucked up awful things are gonna happen. And I think that humor is this like lubricant um, that lets you slip through life in some way. And I feel like when I started making art, you know, besides making art to impress people, like I was a good drawer, so I would draw something nice and show it off to my classmates or give it to a girl or something. You know, um, once I, found some other way of making art it seemed that humor for me was like the only constant material that i use i think of it as a material like stone or paint or anything it's it's the material that holds what i do together i think and i think your work too sort of has that no yeah i feel for me humor is like the sugar that makes the medicine go down 
that it's a way to invite people to engage with topics that otherwise they wouldn't be interested in thinking about because it brings a softness and a humanity to even difficult topics. And you often, I feel like, more so than me, maybe deal very pointedly with specific difficult topics. And that's one thing I've, you know, even before I knew you, I was always drawn to your work because, yeah, it's exactly what you're saying. I think that there's a, there's a way that it doesn't take, it softens it, but it doesn't. It, it, it allows entry to the thing, I think. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't, it doesn't really soften it or, or cheapen it or lighten it in any way. It actually even makes it more serious to me. Maybe it's more of an invitation then. It's an invitation to engage or to think about something that might be difficult. And I think going back to what you said about your dad, oftentimes the humor that you use is more physical humor or more illustrated kind of um, bodily humor, whereas mm, I sure. use a lot more language in my Absolutely. work. I spent a lot of time as a child with my nose in a book. I don't want to tell you where my nose was. but Well, what were you doing? I was out just getting dirty and running around and fucking around with the other kids. I was alone in the woods. <laughs> Reading what? Anything I could get my hands on. My parents had an exercycle in my dad's study, and it was right next to the bookshelf. And so I would sit there on the exercycle. Would you cycle? No, I would read the books on the bookshelf sitting on the exercycle. My dad had a copy of Black's Law Dictionary, and I would read about legal terms. And on the top shelf, you had to stand on the seat of the exercycle to get there, was the joy of sex. And then in between Black's Law Dictionary and... Uh, the joy of sex. The joy of sex was a lot of books by Kurt Vonnegut and Richard Brodigan. Did your dad have any other racy books besides The Joy of Sex, or was that alone at the at the apex? I don't even know if that was my dad's copy, because it was my mom's <laughs> books, too. <laughs> well, Brodigan's pretty I mean, raunchy. Our, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Willard and his bowling trophies ruined me at age 10. <laughs> that was a really uh, curious text for a young person. Well, I have to say, even Brodigan's book covers alone, every book cover, he's like got some other lady with him <laughs> right. on the cover. Yeah. It's like those, I just know his books by him and some other. There's woman. actually an edition of The Joy of Sex that he is on the back cover of it. With is that true? <laughs> he, he was totally hashtag me too before hashtag me too. <laughs> Well, how, how does all that stuff like find its way into your work now, or does it? Or some, what version of it finds its way into your work? You're making bookshelves. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I am making knitted bookshelves. I should make that bookshelf, actually, if I can remember what else was on it. But... And an exercycle as well. Yeah, with an exercise In the installation, there's yeah. an, an exercycle from the 70s. No. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it really informed a lot of who I am as a person, probably, or who I am as a thinker and a maker. Um, that kind of humor, that kind of non sequiturs a lot, um, kind of surrealistic, um, hippie, dystopian vibe, I think I probably got at a very young age from sitting on that exercise cycle, 
reading a combination of legal texts and 70s hippie fiction. If I could interject, yeah, as a, <laughs> as a way to go from what you're talking about with this yeah. literary stuff is your your four your four words project. I mean, you've been doing this project now for since Trump a year since Trump yeah. was elected, yeah, and you've raised a huge amount of money. Maybe you could talk about that. Um, I was really upset the day after the election, even the night of the election. Like so many other people, maybe fifty percent of your listeners. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit more. I'm going to bet 99.9. Oh, Fingers crossed. You I'm always sure have to leave 0.0%. I would like to open this podcast up to a larger demographic than simply the cultural elite. Whoa. It is called the people, so why don't we make it about the people, and that would be uh, 49% this Trump voters. This is so unlike you. Well, I personally, and I can't speak for everyone, and I and I apologize if people take this the wrong way, but I personally was dismayed by the election. I was at Whole Foods buying snacks when the numbers started to go south on the New York Times app. And I got on the train going home with a bag full of snacks and a Hillary t-shirt. Anyway, the next day I woke up and I said, what can I do? And so I made this drawing, maybe it's a painting, it's on paper, so I call it a drawing, but it's actually made of gouache and paper. And it was four words and I put it on Instagram and I said, anyone who wants this drawing, just give $500 to the ACLU or something. And so someone did and then I made a hundred more. And many of them have gone to homes, and many organizations have benefited from the project. And um, that's how I kind of dealt with my dismay. Are they always the same four words? Oh, no. There are four. <laughs> there are... Every time it's different. <laughs> every yeah, every okay. time it's different. And it's whatever's I'm thinking about at the time. And you're going to ask me for some examples, and it's really hard because I have a really bad memory. And once I make an artwork or something in the world, it's gone. It's gone from my head, and it never comes back unless I look back at it. Hmm. So, so I won't ask you for so I, I mean, I remember a few, but I mean, generally, it's shut. like I just forget. Yeah. Every, I just have a terrible memory. But a lot of them are like song lyrics or phrases I made up or sort of poetic or... Political slogans. Political or angry or pissed or happy. No, they're never happy. They're sometimes a little bit optimistic in some way. Really? I feel like there are a few. Maybe. So. Maybe we could talk a little bit about you playing in the mud and oh. hmm. what that led to. Oof. I feel like I'm on the couch here. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> how Freudian. That, how that leads into your lineage are going to work here. How that leads into your artistic. Um, how did it lead into my artistic practice? Mm. Um, I would say, hmm. Well, my grandfather was a real physical guy, too. Um, I was raised in a house with my mother and my father and my grandfather, my mother's father, until I was 11 years old. 
and then my parents divorced, and I lived with my father and my grandfather, my father's ex-wife's father. So it was three generations of three dudes living in a house together. My father was a runner, real serious runner, like ran 10 miles every day for like 35 years. And um, my grandfather was a real physical guy too. Always worked his whole life like with his body. Well, I'm just wondering, instead of talking about what playing in the mud led to, maybe you're talking about how your reputation as an artist interested in masculinity formed as a young lad growing up in a bro house. Well, yeah, I grew up in the country in a bro house. Um, you know, three generations of dudes. Um, my dad was you know, a total athlete, um, a, a, an endurance athlete, until he was 67 when he had to stop running. Um, I think he ran like 70,000 miles or something ridiculous in his life. And my grandfather was an quarry inspector and a guy who worked on roads and stuff. Um, you know, you can't escape what you, where you grow up. <laughs> I mean, hey, I don't know. Sorry. Hey, Joel. Yeah. Do you think our parents are going to listen to this podcast? No, not unless you tell them. Not unless we Because I don't want my parents to know that I found the joy of sex on the top shelf. Because <laughs> I was always so careful to put it away and pretend that I hadn't seen it. Yeah. I used to do that with my dad's Playboys. I was very careful about putting them back perfectly. Do you think they knew at the time? Oh yeah, of course he did. Of course he did. I fucked up. I I know I had to have fucked up occasion because there were times when you know he would he would come home from work early and it would be like scrambling to get it before he would come up the stairs, you know, to get it back into the closet and you know under the right in the right order under the right fucking bunch of shit he put on top of him and think he was hiding him from me or something. I read my father's Playboys too, but I told him it was for the articles (laughs) because he caught you. No, but I think it was sort of. The word on the street that the articles they were did have good why articles. You looked at Playboy. Did they really? They I mean, did that's what really. Everyone says they had great interviews. Yeah, there are great interviews with people. Okay, but Playboy. that being said, all parents who have stashes of pornography in the home know for a fact that their kids are going to try and get into them, so they're ready. Yeah, to discover sure. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. not anymore no now with the internet. It's true. Yeah. Kids these days, these millennials, oh. you know how they are. Don't get me started. We won't. We'll talk about. We'll Joel talk about like that relationship to physicality or bro-ness, oh, yeah. Sorry. as it were. Yeah, yeah. Um, like there was a- the good thing was there was never broness, um, and and again my grandfather you know was a guy who's just was all about my grandfather after he retired he would go he would find somebody nearby who was working on the road like a road crew, and he would go in the morning with a sandwich. And he would hang out there the entire day that they were working and just watch them work. He generally wouldn't even talk to them. He would just watch them work. <laughs> so that's what I mean about being tied to this idea of, like, the body doing something. And, and I think that for me, you know, I grew up playing sports. I grew up playing soccer my whole life. I wrestled. Um, I was involved in, you know, other sort of things on the side. But those were the two main, main sports. And... How do you I, think that does that does that feed into some of the sculptural work that you sure, do? Like, sure, absolutely. I mean, I think that you know, along with humor, let's say, you know, the body is this thing that we're all a prisoner of, right? Our big stupid head minds are stuck in this shitty fucking vessel that 
fails us at every turn and you know some at its best gives us some joy but usually lets us down and I, I, we relate to that i mean there's no there's no coincidence that up until a certain point all sculptures were relatable to the size of a body to the human form i mean we we experience the world through our bodies and everything is related to our bodies um and so again like i was saying about humor the body is this place that really you can connect like i can take something that i've made and show it to anybody in the world and if it's funny and it's about your body you're going to get it no matter what culture that is and I've, or language yeah yeah right? well, no matter yeah, what language yeah, i've been yeah. lucky enough to firsthand experience that in cultures that are vastly different than my own um that people do connect with these base things i mean i didn't necessarily initially choose that line of that tactic of working I just did it because it felt natural and I definitely believe most art that I've made that is interesting to me I made it on instinct not on thinking and you know I didn't go out with that tactic I didn't think to myself I didn't like make up a grand scheme and think you know here's how I'm going to make a connection with people it's just what came naturally to me instinctually and then I realized that it had this thing you know and then I that it had this ability to communicate across cultures, across languages, like you're saying. And, um, and then I thought that was a really interesting, you know, a, a really interesting thing to discover on its very own. Um, in a way, it was like a certain kind of philosophy that was born out through physical experience, if that makes sense. Like the kind of things that I later in life in graduate school read about and shit I had was forced to read. But I was like, oh, I fit in somewhere, even though I wasn't trying to fit in. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, to me, I guess, you know, that's where it comes from. And, and I'm just also, you know, I, I, most of my life, I, I really enjoyed like the physical, I, I enjoy the pleasure of the body, you know, like whether that in whatever way that is. And I think that's another thing that, um, you know, and that can also sometimes a lot of the humor I have and not a lot, but some of the humor I employ in my work is about, things like altering your consciousness are getting fucked up <laughs> and that I think that 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 ability to to sort of at least temporarily change your perception of your body and the way it behaves and the way your mind works um, is is something that also we all no matter what culture we're from you know we're, we're seeking that we're seeking that as a child when we the first time we spin around and around and around until we fall down that's the first fucked up and then you're chasing that fucked up in whatever you can get at for the rest of your life. Now, that doesn't need to be liquor. It can be, I go to the gym for three hours a day or I'm addicted to whatever it is, that your body needs something. And I think that that the, the, the appetite of, of the body in connection with the appetite of the mind is, is a fertile, you know, it's a rich ground to sow some seeds in <laughs> um, as far as trying to make work and make connections with other human beings. Do you think of your fountains as self-portraits? Well, I guess I kind of think everything is some sort of self-portrait in a way. Because but... I was thinking about the fountains when you were speaking about the body and how many of your fountains have sort of leaky qualities to them or water that spews all over the floor in kind of a messy way. Mm -hmm. Not, I mean, intentionally so, just the the sort of extra extra droplets sure. spilling out and creating these kind of 
drawings on the floor, I guess, in some way. And also um, that portrait of yourself as a fountain that you've done a few different times, once as a performance and recently as a photograph. And just thinking about how the circulation of fluids through the body is such an important aspect of physicality for you. Yeah. And, and the failure of those fluids to be contained. Mm-hmm. In, right? Exactly. Like, Absolutely. Exactly. The body being a betrayer. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then the fountain, you know, too, is something that, you know, if you approach it as an expert and you are, you are an expert, you can make a fountain that's very, um, you know, very self-contained, very contained and very neat. Um, I, even when I start to learn about something or I think, you know, when I, when I start to, um, get good at something, I'm trying to always sort of undermine that skill. Um, to stay at this sort of beginner's mindset um, so that those mistakes happen and those faults happen. Um, and I think that, you know, in the end, I mean, the body, the fountain kind of works like the body, you know, some liquid goes in the top and gravity and different tubes and stuff take it to the bottom and, and it exits. Um, but at the same time, I think it's even bigger than that in that it's just, it's a, it's a system. You know, a fountain is, is one of an, a, a, of a million different systems we deal with all the time and the system this system is very unruly and messy and unpredictable and I think that that's um, as again as humans in bodies we can all relate to that mm-hmm. um, that messiness and that and I think that messiness that the messy part of it too I think when you're dealing with it in the world physically you're thinking, oh shit, you know, this is, this, something's going wrong. We need to get a towel. Somebody needs to talk to a person. We need to fix this thing. And that's the same kind of experience that we all have privately in bedrooms and bathrooms throughout our lives where we're, something's wrong or we're scared or we're alone and, and we feel like something, our body's betraying us. And that betrayal, I think, is at the, the root of the most primal fear humans have. And I think that that, the primacy of that fear is something that, again, is a connector, is something that we all can sort of access. You're listening to The People on Chung 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. Remember, you can listen to The People on Chung 1630 AM every third Sunday at 3 PM, or you can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. And now back to our conversation with Joel Kayak and Lisa Ann Auerbach. So, Lisa, what's the meow? I've got these two cats, Daisy and Clyde, and they're amazing inspirations to me. And so I wanted to open a space called the meow. I started a radio station called WMEW, and it was supposed to be broadcast out of the meow. And then the meow started to exist inside a shed behind my home and instead of opening the radio station in there because of the reception not the reception the transmission from down in the canyon is not great so instead we started a tattoo shop called the dirty poke that featured tattoos by joel and matt and the meow became a venue for small businesses run by artists and the small businesses are related to their art, but are not their art. So no one can have a show of paintings there. But if you're a tattoo maker, 
you can ply your trade as a tattooer in the meow. And that's what happened in the first show. Does that answer your question? Uh, yeah. It's kind of oblique. Roughly. So tell us other things that have happened there. Well, after the dirty poke, Joel became a full partner in the Meow staff. So now the Meow is run by me and Joel together. And our second show at the Meow was, Asher. what was it? Asher Hartman. Asher Hartman, who was looking, he, you know, Asher's a psychic. And Asher was practicing his psychic readings either at people's homes or at his home. And he thought, what would it be like to have an office? And the meow was available. And we said, well, why don't you come and start an office at the meow and see if anyone comes? And Asher had this vision in 1985 of a mural that featured a goat, a chicken, a lion a lion and a horse and prince and it said animals strike curious poses and so we decided to paint this mural on the meow and open up for business as Asher Hartman intuitive psychic the third show was Michael Decker's collection of silly sculpts. And that was just in time for the holidays last year. And people came in and bought these incredible three-dimensional greeting cards with all sorts of affirmational and inspirational phrases. After that, we hosted a record store called P&B Records by Ethan Swan and Dave Muller. And at this point, like at that point of having a couple shows, you, I think you kind of had an idea about like what you wanted the thing to be or what you wanted it not to be? Yeah, I was really interested in making a space that was, I don't want to sound like a snob by saying artists only, but I didn't want the distracting elements of the art market to come into play in my own backyard. And so I wanted to have a space and we wanted to have a space that was comfortable and cozy and fun and felt like a real community of like-minded people. And that also that it was a real true functioning business because we had a good deal of people giving us proposals um, for things that were either too close to their own practice as artists or, um, you know, not necessarily like their work, but then some other conceptual art project that was going to be running in there that no one was, you know, people might show up for, but no one was ever going to fucking buy anything. I think we were really in, in, intent on money changing hands within the walls of the meow, that we were also talking about the economy as it pertains to artists, and that most people that we know make money a different way than they make art. I mean, that doesn't sound right. They earn money not from their art, by, but by something else. And so we wanted to kind of lay bare that idea and invite artists to make money in some way that wasn't selling art. 
and that in the transactions too, we were not a part of it in any way. So it, they either were, you know, using like a square for credit cards or cash, and that would go from the person who was buying the thing to rate to the artist. And to I think that was a really symbolically for us was it was important. Mm-hmm. More of a response to what a lot of artists situation that a lot of artists are in right now, where you make art because you make art, but that's not what's paying the bills. Right. And also the changing, like inside of art communities, like the changing relationship between people inside of those communities, like as people get more attention and people get less attention, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Yeah. I think I was thinking, yeah, about that, about this idea that collaboration was one thing when you were in art school and everyone was at the same stage of their lives or their I don't even want to say that word, the C word, but um, you know what I'm talking about. So people are at a different state or at the same stage of life, maybe when you were a student and it was really easy to ask someone to collaborate with you on a project. But 20 years later, it becomes an uneven playing field when you ask someone to collaborate and you're in a different position than they are. Maybe you've had like two shows and they've had one show or you've had like six shows and they've had one show. And then suddenly there's this uneven dynamic that can be really uncomfortable. And I've found that I've been on both sides of that. And I felt like the meow was a way to still collaborate with people, but not have it have that sort of unseemly um, or possible, possibly divisive characteristic of the unevenness of power. So here with the meow, we give the give the space to the artist and and do some simple renovations and hopefully that kind of I don't know feels okay to the person who's then spends four or five Sundays plying their trade in that space I just really wanted art to be fun again because I went through (laughs) a phase where it just felt like work in not a great way also, I think what's interesting in Los Angeles is that in my short time being here, I've only been here 11 years, but I've seen the landscape change dramatically as far as, uh, you know, the commercial intention that's on the city. Mm-hmm. And so for us, too, I think, like, that was, you know, as much as it was as, as it was a sort of general reaction to um, hierarchies or power structures around the art world, it was also particular to the, for me at least, it felt kind of particular to the city and how quickly it changed where you're seeing these weird, awkward hierarchies emerge where you didn't see them before or didn't want to see them or didn't want to be a part of them. You know, L.A. seemed to be romanticized, at least in my mind, before I arrived here as like the real artist town. You know, like this is where artists lived and there wasn't a market really. There was a couple galleries. You know, again, I wasn't here in that time, so I'm sure someone else will tell a different story who was, but um, at least that's how an outsider perceived it. And when I arrived in 2006, you know, it was definitely a change, but it still felt pretty manageable. And in my time, I feel like it's, it's still manageable, of course, but it's changed. It's gotten, you know, a market has come here that used to, it used to seem like it, it really wasn't a part. You know, people, artists from here went somewhere else to show their work or to sell their work. And it, now it happens here, you know, to a certain degree. Do you all see anybody else, any any other artists or any other spaces, like, responding to that condition here or in New York or wherever, like, with the same sort of thing as you're trying to do with Meow? 
I think what is a little bit different about the meow is that it was really about businesses. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that's what was interesting to us. I think there are and have always been a lot of spaces in people's homes, garages, and apartments in Los Angeles. In yeah, fact, that's I, what's great about this. City. I've heard of some podcasts that are recorded in people's apartments <laughs> above <laughs> studios. Amateurs. I've Amateurs. never heard one, but it's lowbrow stuff. But yeah, we, yeah, we but won't I, talk about hacks, them. Yeah. All hacks. But even you know when I've moved here, there were a lot of artist-run spaces that were in homes, studios, garages. Uh, outdoors and places, parks. And I think there still is a fair amount of that being done. Um, the Meow was, was specific to being businesses, and I think that's what set it apart, is that we really wanted to have that conversation about the economy and the artist's economy within this larger kind of art community. So out of that has been born this this idea um, because of the facilities that Lisa has access to where she teaches um, and she can. She's made her own last few books um, that she's produced that have been made. Are she made herself, and they look like straight up, you know, real, real deal books. Well, you can w- wag your hand, but I think they look great. I mean, we have a perfect binder, yeah, and, color you know, Xerox machine. So we're it gonna, looks great, ready yeah. to go. So, so we're going to start. Um, the meow is going to become the meow sings meow, and that's going to be the name of this publishing arm that we're going to start um, making art books. Um, and so maybe the meow as a physical entity that is publicized as here, we're going to have a show here, is uh, um, on a bit of hiatus maybe. I think we want to keep it slow because we don't want people falling down the stairs and suing us, and we don't want too many strangers coming over. <laughs> and I know that sounds bad because it's not like inclusive, but I think it was really about an intimate community or is really about an, a small um, community of people and not being about something that everyone can go and take a selfie in front of or whatever. So I really want to make a library down there. Yeah, I mean, but I maybe think that's really the next project. That would is... be that would be a pretty big project because I, I want to, like I have to figure out how to do a card catalog and that just seems like a real time suck. Lisa's been talking about um, a, a true um, off-the-grid library that would have to do with what would what would you need a library for after the internet stops? What do we need a library for after the internet is stopped? Sur- yeah, survival, because, how to yeah. grow your own food. I'm really right. interested in the internet stopping, and so I I think we do a lot of research on the internet right now, and so I'd like to have that library that would replace the internet. And we don't have a public library in our neighborhood, so it would be a public library for the neighborhood, but of course it wouldn't be very public because we don't want people right. falling I mean, down the stairs and suing us. <laughs> and our... You know, weirdly enough, these little projects we've done have gotten a bit of attention, and that makes us a little awkward. You know, a little, it feels weird to then, you know, be recognized by this, by this machine that, you know, we're, you know, we're not, we're not operating against it, mm-hmm. but we're operating maybe outside of it or in response to it. And then to have approval from it or to be embraced by it, you know, is a, is a, you know, you have to walk gently then as far as, you know, your legitimacy or your, you know, what it is you're trying to do when it gets consumed by this bigger machine that, you know, the very outset of are what you, you did was about, like, not being a part of that machine. Hey, Joel, are you afraid of being called a sellout? No, not at all. What I mean, happens when we get a Guggenheim grant to put an escalator down to the meow? 
Wouldn't that be awesome? I think we should put an addition on the house. Or an old school ski lift like Bogey. Oh my God. That would be an amazing. A a ski lift would be amazing. (laughs) That's what all the old like Hollywood stars had in Silver Lake. Really? And and we had a a funicular right in our neighborhood that used to take you up to the hotel, which is now the Self Realization Fellowship. So, I mean, a ski lift would be. A ski lift, that's brilliant. Amazing, actually. That is the best. I didn't think of it. Humphrey Bogart thought of it. How did you get off the ski lift? We just have to stop it each time. You know, you stop (laughs) it, you get off, you turn it back. Can we have a rope tow? Well, you would have to be on skis. I mean, the rope toe would be pretty treacherous. Imagine just dragging someone up or down the hill. <laughs> Back to the story is yeah. that it's going to be a publishing company, arm company. I hate that word. It's going to be a publishing, arm. an imprint. An imprint. A, a publishing arm. It's growing a publishing arm. <laughs> and eventually it may be a public library or something else. Yeah, it's a I mean, flexible space with open to desires yeah we i mean lisa i think started it as sort of like like a dream like a place to just live out her dreams <laughs> in some way um or like a repository for, for these ideas but i think in the end like you know i think that both of us i don't want to speak for you but i think that in the way we meander through the work we make and kind of do one thing and then do another and it really feels you know we feel like we both run on mostly intuition that 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 the meow can be that thing too where we don't have to you know build this thing that has expectations and then live up to these expectations like we can just do whatever the fuck we want to do and like if we have a show and it's awesome and then we never want to do a show again like we should just be able to do that (laughs) i think i think overall i have a particular aversion to the idea of a business plan or of goals generally speaking and so i think that the meow is a place that as joel said can be a real romp and we're a meander, and it's a blank slate for dreams. You're listening to The People on Kei Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. You can find The People on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Overcast, and everywhere that you find your podcasts. And now let's get back to our conversation with Joel Kayak and Lisa Ann Auerbach. Speaking yeah. of churches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, hey, speaking of churches. <laughs> um, speaking of churches. Because I come from that background, can you tell me about the mega church project, the photographs, the magazines? Yes. I started the mega church project as a pivot from another project I did that was photographing small freestanding businesses. And I thought that the small freestanding business to me was a representation of America in some way, that it was this individualistic, capitalistic model. And I photographed them for a long time, and then I was thinking about the next project to do. And I wanted to do something that was very opposite, but also exactly the same. That was another idea of defining this country. And so on one hand, small businesses are like, individuals lifting themselves up by their bootstraps, hanging a shingle, and the megachurch represented to me this kind of opposite but but ancillary idea of what America is, which is faith and family and community on this like gigantic, horrific 
scale. And I started looking at this magazine called Outreach, which is like a trade magazine for the megachurch and, and for churches in general and for church planting. And they have a top 100 megachurch list. And so I started photographing those. And there's also a um, another database online out of, uh, where is it, Connecticut or something? And they also have a list of megachurches. And so I photographed from those lists. And the buildings themselves were really interesting to me because they're so oversized and in the model of other sorts of buildings like warehouses, corporate campuses. Some looked like casinos. Some looked from the outside like malls. And some just looked like oversized churches that were just like blown up. Baptist churches, especially the Southern Baptist mega churches, are just like they look like a small church on steroids. So I photographed a lot of mega churches. Was the question? That's it. That oh, was the question. Okay. And oh, and then the magazine came out of what do you do with a bunch of pictures of mega churches? Because <laughs> there was something very sort of lovely, maybe nostalgic, maybe sweet about a bunch of giant photographs of small businesses because they felt relatable and human. And when I made giant pictures of megachurches, they just felt depressing and ugly and oppressive. And the thought of being in a room full of large photographs of these large churches didn't feel right to me. So I put them in a large zine because I really still like big pictures but I just didn't want them framed. It was too much. Well, what's, what struck me about them, and I know you've talked about this before in interviews, which I've read, but uh, the, about, the, about the architecture of these, mm-hmm. these places of worship, because they're not, they're not Gothic cathedrals. They're, they're warehouses or they're movie theaters or they're, they used to be bowling alleys or whatever. It's like it's not about creating a scripted space necessarily, mm-hmm. even though it kind of does that. Yeah, it's some about, are. Like putting asses in the seats, maybe. Yeah, some are. I mean, some like um, the Calvary, Calvary, Calvary churches. <laughs> I don't know. I never say it out loud because it's not like I'm talking to people oh, about yeah, it. I get it. I, get I just it. look at it on a list. I drive up to it. I go, it's another Calvary church in a repurposed Kmart. <laughs> a lot of them are in strip malls, specifically that denomination oftentimes inhabits a strip mall where you you look at the outside and you think, how can there be, what what is that kind of seating, staggered seating where everyone can really see? Mm-hmm. You just look at that building and it has like nine foot ceilings and and you imagine what the inside looks like and it just seems so shitty. It is. But other but other churches from the outside look really gorgeous and but do some you are think circular. that maybe in some way that these churches and their location reflects some sort of part of modern culture where the outside is this sort of mundane um anywhere american thing and then the interior is some other sort of complex no because the interiors aren't complex it's just no but i mean that like the, the outside practical. looks the same and that the interior can be anything but the outside has got this sort of cookie cutterness to it but then the inside of you know any building you if you're the renter or owner you can do whatever you want in those spaces so maybe there's some sort of magic that happens out of this sort of 
you know, the, the strip mall aesthetic where then you walk into it and you've got giant TVs and you've got, you know, some sort of magical scene happening. I mean, I don't know. I've, you've, I'm asking you in a way. It's just you, a you've different, spent more you know, my these... personal aesthetic is not the aesthetic of the mega church. So when you say something magical is happening inside and then you say giant TVs, like giant TVs are like my version of hell. I don't mean it like that. I mean that you have an exterior that looks like anywhere America in the strip mall or the repurposed Kmart mm-hmm. that is very different than a unique, beautiful church that somebody designed and built a century ago. Yet inside, you then have this place of worship that is very different than the interior of a Pizza Hut, let's say. Maybe not. I mean, I would imagine a lot of people go to Pizza Hut, worship the pizzas that Pizza Hut makes. And well, the thing that the thing that they do, I mean, the interiors <clears throat> of those mega churches or those kind of smaller scales churches that are like in those similar places, like they do the same thing. The interiors are, are equally uh, banal. They're equally like industrial. Like they'll throw up some banners or whatever. Uh, or a stage or some lights or whatever, but it's, I think that it is on that like Walmart design aesthetic Mm. in that like it's not, maybe not intentionally badly designed, but like that, that sort of lack of ostentation and lack of like traditional Gothic architecture or whatever, like that is a way for like, for just any, be like, oh yeah, I know what this is like. Like Kmart, yeah. I know this. It's a way like, to connect mm, with those yeah. with the people that would mm. be going there already right. because they're like, going yeah, to I Walmart. Can... They're going to Kmart. This feels and then familiar they go to church to me. and it's uh, yeah. they feel comfortable. Yeah, yeah sure, it makes sense. I think also a Gothic cathedral or a traditional European cathedral is supposed to make you feel small mm-hmm. because its grandiosity is akin to this idea of a supernatural creator. Totally, and you in the in the house of that creator should feel that power and american churches don't share that idea and so it is not a space of feeling physically diminished it's a space of being with your community of like-minded christians listening to guitar music and enjoying some strobing light show and listening to a sermon yeah it's like it's an extension of the like the long american protestant the horizontal experiment horizontal it's really it's really made to convince you that abortion is evil yeah well true (laughs) true and that women should really stay in their role as baby makers yeah something you've been working your ass off on this sure i love dreams i mean i'll talk about marijuana growing photography whatever but I think you've been working your ass off on a project that's almost done. I'm just designing some sweaters for a fashion and pa- and line. And pants and balaclava. Some pants. Leggings, maybe. A balaclava mm-hmm. yesterday mm-hmm. for a fashion line that's being relaunched. And it was this designer named Rudy Gernrich who invented the thong, <laughs> among other things. He was the first designer to also take the underwire out of bras and make a natural bra. He started, or he was one of the people who founded the first gay rights organization, I think in America, if not in California, but I think in America, the Mattakeen Society, although he himself was closeted his entire life. He died in 1985. Um, He was very involved with the ACLU. He hung out with a lot of artists. 
and he was really revolutionary in the fashion industry. He created things like the cutouts. Anyway, I don't want to go on the, and on the, about what is it, like the monokini. He did the monokini, which is the topless bikini. <laughs> he was just this like really famous icon in fashion, and he's very influential get involved to a lot of fashion um, designers. I was asked to design some sweaters for a relaunch of his brand or his line or his label. His label, I guess you call it, not brand. His label. So I was invited to, to make a few sweaters for as that. As a micro collection inside of Rudy's as overall. As a micro. As a capsule collection. Capsule. My own capsule collection. And it was really challenging, and it continues to be challenging because I've made sweaters for a long time, and they're very personal. And so the idea of making sweaters that other people would wear is a little bit terrifying. Because? Um, I guess I just think like many of my sweaters say stuff that I would think that no one else would want to walk around wearing. Like there's not like a, a broad market for them. <laughs> and they may not. Right. <laughs> and they may we'll not. We'll see. Yeah. Not. Yeah. And so, but what? Tell us uh, what is one of the pieces that you're working on. What What is the text on on one of the pieces? There's a pair of pants that has fishnet stockings knitted into it, and a thong, a pair of underwear knitted into it, because a lot of Rudy's work, not a lot, but there were pieces where he would knit the shape of a bra onto a sweater as a piece that kind of talked about outerwear, underwear, I guess. And so that's a pair of pants that will come out. Well, Joel, fun. don't you have some shit going on? Yeah, what on? about you, Joel? What yeah. about that yeah, yeah. big show in London? Um, Doesn't want to talk about it. Yeah, I have a show coming up in London that opens next week um, with Workplace Gallery, which is a really great um crew of people who have a gallery in the north of England in Gateshead which is just across the river from Newcastle and then they now have a space in London um, and I've done a show with them in Gateshead and I've done a two person show and a performance in London but this will be my first solo show with them in the London space. This will also be the first show that I've made where I don't have a I didn't make it out of my studio um, and I think that's going to be a really interesting thing that I'm excited to see how it plays out. What do you mean you didn't make it out of your studio? I, I gave up my studio about a year, year and a half ago. And, um, you know, I never, I never had a studio outside of my home until I went to graduate school. I was in my mid-30s. And then I didn't actually have a stu studio outside of my bedroom or my house until I was... 39-ish. Um, and I felt, you know, as exciting as it was to have a place to work, and I'm a very messy person, so having a place that I can be messy and I don't have to answer to anyone was a true fucking joy um, and a real, like, liberating thing. But at the same time, I think the studio took me took my work in a direction that's very different than the work I'd made prior to that and even the way my mind works. Um, I'd like to think that my work is really close to who I am. 
Um, I don't really keep much of a separation. And I'd like to think that maybe part of that always came from the fact that I just lived with my work or, you know, my studio was kind of, you know, between, right there. between my ears or wherever I was at any moment. Um, and it gave the work a certain kind of life that I think the studio, the expectation of the studio may, and only time will tell, but may have sort of extinguished some of the fire, some of the sort of magic fire that was there before. I mean, I'm not, I'm not dissing on a studio, and I'm not saying that having a studio as part of your practice is a bad thing. I'm speaking solely for myself. Um, that I think, again, you know, when we were talking about the meow earlier and this idea of expectation fulfillment and the way that works, you know, I think that expectation fulfillment also happens at a personal level. Like you, you create a character that you live or, you know, whether it's you as a character in the world or your work becomes a character, it becomes something that people like or they don't like, but it becomes a thing that creates a set of expectations in a public or in, in yourself, more, fuck the public, in yourself. And that sort of pattern of thinking and working and the kind of, um, <clears throat> the kind of condition that a studio makes about productivity and getting things done and being efficient with your time and live, you know, creating a plan and executing that plan because you've got, you know, you're paying rent, blah, blah, blah. I mean, you know, I, I know this all sounds like sort of nitpicky, but, but at the same time, I think that that sort of way of thinking kind of got me down and um, or it felt like I was obligated in some way to be something or do something that is new to me because I've never felt that before. Um, I also, you know, never had anyone who was paying attention to what I was doing. So maybe that's, you know, a different kind of, maybe it's a bigger conversation than I'm making it out to be. But, but there's something about the, the not studio that I'm really interested in and really excited about. So for me, this is, you know, people have been asking me, are you excited about your show? And I'm like, no, I'm not excited at all. <laughs> I'm interested to see what happens. Um, maybe I'll be excited afterwards if it works. Um, but, but it might not. Um, you know, I've become someone who's really, I've always been interested in materials and objects and like, really a physical world of, of, of making. And so to not be sort of constantly playing and tweaking physical things is kind of new for me. Um, even though I'll be making most of the work on site when I get to London, gathering shit that I find in the city and making it in this space, it still feels a little awesome, I guess, in that I... I do a lot of work where I go and make something on site or I don't really know what I'm going to do. And this, like, there's a certain kind of, I've decided on what's going to happen, but I've not really made any of it yet. Okay. And that's exciting and it just feels really, like, nimble and flexible right now. And, and, and I think that a certain amount of that comes out of, you know, from us doing the meow together and sort of always leaving everything you know, as much as we like to prepare, we're, we're both terrible at it. And um, we're, we're terrible at being neat and we're terrible at being organized. Um, and the art world, the professional art world expects those kinds of things from you. Organization, reliability, expectation fulfillment. 
and as thankful as I am to be a part of that world and the opportunities that it affords me, I'm rather completely and wholly uninterested in that. So we'll see where this goes. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Well, Joel, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us on The People. We thank you, guys. It. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. You've been listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. Remember to find us on iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud or Overcast or wherever else you get your podcasts. And do find us on Facebook and like us. That would be great. Um, Our theme music, as always, is Ock Fifth by Lewis Keller. And uh, we're going to go out with a song from Joel Kayak's new project called Aging. And the name of the track is If The.